welcome to episode, well, hello and welcome to season two of Movies and Tea. Um, I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and of course joining me is my wonderful co-host, and no doubt the reason you're all here, Miss Kim Lowe. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Glad to be uh, back. <laughs> I know, we had a little bit of a break, and we're now back with a new director to focus on for the season, and you know... We're generally in a very positive thing because we got some really good feedback from season one where we talked about Paul W. Sanson and looked for the various ups and lows of his career and, you know, watched a whole bunch of Resident Evil movies, which was fun. And now we're here on season two. We've got a new director. We're going to, This season we're going to be looking at Guillermo del Toro. Um, and perhaps by the end of the season we'll be able to learn how to spell Guillermo because I've, like... Over the course of this week, just doing research and stuff, I don't think I've ever managed to spell it correctly. So, it's uh, it's certainly going to be a fun um, season, I think, because certainly Del Toro is one of my favorite directors. Um, for yourself, Kim, I think is he right saying he's a sort of director you've no bits and pieces of. Yeah, well. I mean, um, for Del Toro, I think it was really Pan's Labyrinth that got me started. So after that, I think I've seen all his films after that point okay so i mean so the, you know like the front part is going to be the uh, fun new bits for me <laughs> i think then didn't really surprise me i think pan's labyrinth was the movie which sort of like put delta on the map for a lot of people and i know for myself i'd seen delta's films but i never really sort of connected him he wasn't like a director who sort of stood out like you know like quentin tarantino robert rodriguez spike lee as sort of like a director and their work it was sort of like oh i like these movies but i never connected it as all being the same director so when obviously like pan's labyrinth and hellboy came out it was sort of then i started noticing like del toro and really sort of delving more into his, his sort of film so it's kind of exciting to obviously go back and look at the early films especially uh, because i know his later work is where i tend to rewatch most of uh these so to obviously go back and uh and look at those other films i'm really kind of excited about um before we obviously dive into our first film to kick off the season uh which is of course chronos um we you can obviously catch up with all our previous episodes uh in our archive which you can find on our blog which is movies in podcast.wordpress.com uh you can also drop us an email if you wish uh the email address is movies at yahoo.com as well we'd obviously love to hear your thoughts on uh del toro and obviously your favorite films and uh general thoughts on the uh the work of work of the director we'd say love to hear from you and uh of course you can find our podcast both on spotify and itunes and as well as anchor.fm uh so we're slowly hitting all the different channels and places you can find podcasts but obviously if there's an app or something that you can't get us on please let us know and we will strive to make our presence felt there as well um before we obviously get into Kronos, I mean, I think it's best we just obviously just touch a bit on Del Toro himself, just have a little bit of a film school moment, really, because he's, uh, unlike Anderson, who had sort of like those four sort of trademarks, obviously, like the God's Eye View and um, synchronized shots and central shots, and where Anderson was sort of like driven by more shots, Del Toro has a lot of different themes and motives running through his work, and I mean, he started out when as a director when he was like eight years old using his father's super eight camera 
Um, and all those early films, they did about 10 short films and only two um, have really sort of made it onto DVD after, which is Don Lupe and Geo Matra. Most frustrating of all is a short film which featured a serial killer potato, which I really, really want to see. Um, <laughs> apparently, it's this kill- this potato that goes around and like kills like his brothers and his like mother, and and uh, I wish someone would put that on DVD. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, as a, a director, I mean, he started off as a special effects artist. Um, his first gig being as first assistant director in 1987's Obdulur. He then goes on to work as a special effects artist, uh, really from the period from like 1989 through to 1995, working under Dick Smith. Um, in turn, forming his own production company, Necropia, who are no longer there, but they obviously would go on to do special effects work on Kronos as well. And it's 1993 where he first sort of makes this debut with his take on the vampire genre. And I think this is something we're going to see like time and time again in his work is how he'll take a particular genre and rework it. And I mean, Kim, you obviously said that you came in around Pad's Labyrinth, which is obviously sort of establishes, I mean, Del Toro is with fairy tale worlds. And I mean, is there any particular aspects of Del Toro's work that you like from the films that you've seen or anything that sort of stands out to you? I think it's how you say it right now. It's um, it's exactly what that is, is how he uses kind of his creativity to change or give a twist of his kind of like his own trademark on or his own vision of something that everybody does a lot of. Like, for example, Pan's Labyrinth was fairy tale and he was able to create some, you know, really, uh, you know, iconic monsters i would say i guess you would call them monsters or creatures or something like that um that's just you know obviously one example i mean when we talk about chronos we're probably we're gonna start diving into you know how kind of like that also has a different twist also yeah definitely and i i love the fact as well i mean this is he has this general theme running through his work and this is one that he shares with like tim Burton in that it's really who are the real monsters is it the people we assume to be the monsters or is it actually the humans who are sort of the monsters and you can sort of trace this back to like um to some of his influences when we look at things such as like Todd Browning's Freaks which again asks that very much the question it's sort of like where the sideshow performance where they're seen as like the monsters who actually really are sort of the good guys here and the so-called normals uh the real freaks of that particular picture and other sort of key influences for himself would be like people like James Well who did Frankenstein in 1939 and that shows Del Toro that you know you can use heavy prosthetic makeup and still give stellar performances and you see that obviously with things like Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth where it's all practical effects and yeah. in these times where everyone wants to use CGI he's one of the few directors still favoring practical effects he his films have this sort of presence and the other sort of key influence really is Terence Fisher who is another horror director but is sort of most noteworthy for in the moments of horror rather than doing that crazy shaky cam um sort of nonsense we see in like modern horror he is sort of like keeps the camera fixed and focuses on the horror he doesn't let it sort of move away or as i said do that horrible thing that we see in so much found footage horror which is just shaking over the screen and we get like a glimpse of a killer's elbow or an armpit <laughs> or something uh, so yeah. that sort of nonsense yeah, well, Del Toro, the second thing I do really like about him is there's always this kind of really nice, like, it's, it's kind of what you touched on. It's, 
his visuals also. Um, I mean, I like things to be really nice to my eyes and, you know, just the same reason as to why, um, why I liked Anderson and, you know, how he had kind of like a specific way of how he did his films. Um, Del Toro also has his own style and it, it's actually very stylistic and always very pretty. And by the time, you know, we get to um, Crimson Peak and The Shape of mm. Water, like more recent ones, you can really see like the refinement of how like the care of every shot that he takes and that sort of that sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, it's 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 interesting to see, I think. For someone, someone like Del Toro, who's gotten very popular and and now has, you know, probably uh, the sky is the limit sort of uh, sort of funding behind uh, how much he can put into his projects, how it all started. And I think that that's really what's really interesting about, you know, looking at Del Toro right now, especially for me, because like I said, I haven't seen any of his beginning films and I've heard people talk about, you know, Devil's Backbone all the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you hit it right well the head there. I mean, obviously with Del Toro's films, I mean, although we would like traditionally call them like eye candy pictures, um, Del Toro actually refers to them as being eye protein because everything is all in the detail. They're all there to add to the story. And in his way, it's about building you up and enriching the experience where eye candy is just like, it's just visual. I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. <laughs> um, it's... it's uh, it basically I kind of so I kind of visuals are just there they just go to waste it's like it looks pretty but it doesn't really add anything other than perhaps like an emotional response to the film so certainly when we get into his sort of like uh some of his other films you'll see see the importance of like the details and especially in like how he uses different lights as well because when we get into like his later films such as like uh, Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy you get to see where he's using different lights to distinguish between worlds and also the fact that he starts bringing in this idea that the extraordinary is mundane mm-hmm. whereas films like, many sort of like fantasy films are sort of like look at this isn't this fantastical here have these fantastical elements but they'd be so in the background or just so up front that uh, they're presented in a sort of very mundane way which is kind of uh kind of takes you off guard when you sort of first notice it and i think this is another thing that i think a lot of western audiences have struggled to get on board with with uh del toro's movies because we're so used to films following rules and having logic and del toro is very much in his sort of fairy tale world and it's sort of like my films don't have to follow rhyme and reason because they're in their own worlds and they follow their own logic so and i think again by being a visual director rather than a performance director and sort of like dialogue director um <laughs> and again we're going to touch on this again so when we look at things like pacific rim where he's telling a story through his visuals rather than just having characters whisper on and say oh this is why i'm doing this <laughs> this is why you've got to oh, we're going to do like 10 minutes of exposition when he just rather just do like simple shots of character interactions so yeah, I think I think you have a really good point there. I think just building on what you were saying, like a lot of what his films are um, from breaking out of like the mold and having just, you know, not having rules and not following the rules. He's able to, you know, create um, like layers to a film, like give it extra layers to look at. Like 
Um, I think one of the biggest debates when Crimson Peak came out was that um, it was so out of his style because it was very romancy, and people felt like the horror wasn't as prominent as we would have expected Del Toro to be. But at the same time, there's a depth to Crimson Peak and how he, you know, puts this romantic gothic horror together. And I think that by the time we get there, when we talk about it, because I know you haven't seen it yet, um, that <laughs> we're yeah, going to no, be able to, you know, look a little further <laughs> into it because I don't want to get into too many spoilers and stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, now he's obviously won the Oscar because the always been in this position where he's wanted to do like these projects, but always been sort of held back by the studio. And it's kind of like you win the best picture Oscar and they sort of give you the keys to the kingdom or so it should be. Um, and so we seem with like some of the act of a director who've won like the best director Oscar that they've been given carte blanche to do what they want. And with Del Toro, we've obviously seen like the fight for him to get Hellboy free made, and the studio's not wanting anything to do with it. And it now reached this point where it doesn't look like he's ever going to complete that trilogy. And at the same time, he's got this sort of enthusiasm for like saying oh, i want to do all these different projects but never seen them through to completion hence why we've seen uh in the Manson madness sit on his like slate for like the last 15 years um him saying that he wants to do all these um i can't think of the word now um do all these like different projects and it just never having it so now he's obviously won the best picture oscar for like uh for, for shape of water i just really want to see what he does next and i think this is going to be really interesting to see what he does because up until this point we sort of seen him try to do the hollywood system get annoyed with the hollywood system then go back to uh make like spanish language films and often get the critical acclaim that the studios then in hollywood want to bring him back and we just see this like uh, repeating process of him going back and forth between making like Spanish language films and films in the Hollywood system. So I'm really curious to see what this Oscar winner holds for him. But <laughs> so far, according to IMDb, Pinocchio is in the horizon. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. It could be like really exciting. It could like be some like really he, great twist. But he might, yeah, he might be the one who's gonna give us that Disney adaptation, which is just gonna blow our minds, right? <laughs> I mean, I still remember there was like in like the nineties there was like this anime style version of Pinocchio, but it was like super dark. Yeah, well, um, the, the, you know what I think? The carnival sequence is going to be right up his alley. Like, it's gonna be this beautiful, beautiful scene. Um. Yeah, so anyways, I mean, things to look forward to. I mean, there's Pinocchio and Nightmare Alley and some documentary that he might, that's announced. Yeah. So and it's all announced. We, there's nothing solid right now. Yeah, and I mean, as well as sort of video game journalists, I mean, we get this sort of double dose because he's an enthusiastic video game player as yeah. well. And he's I mean, now doing... He, he's, he, is the, he is the director behind PT, which is like the horror game that didn't get made by um what was it capcom konami yeah and you know <laughs> and it, it's interesting because that game is you know it was just so great that anybody else who wants to replicate it now is just not good enough because the game had just so much depth and it and it was just a demo <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is the thing and now he's i mean he teamed up with uh kojima to do death stranding he's put in a performance in in there. I mean, he's turned up in Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So 
you never know what Del Toro's going to do. I mean, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's a director. He's got all these many irons in the floor and in the fire, and it's kind of like, where's he going to turn up next? And I think it's kind of nice as being obviously a video game journalist, and uh, you can check that out if you go and look up Game Warp, uh, which we'll put the link in the in the section below. Uh, you can find that on thatmomentin.com. Um, we're kind of lucky with it. We obviously get all these different aspects of Del Toro, not only getting to talk about his film work here, but we obviously get to look at his video game work over there as well. So, uh, yeah. But, um, I mean, should we talk about the first film in the Del Toro <laughs> filmography now? Yes, we should. Um, I mean, obviously, regular listeners know that here on Movies and Tea, we, each season we feature a different director, and over the course of the season we will be going through the selective filmography of said director and reevaluating the films on a film by film basis. Tonight we're obviously starting way back in 1993 with Kronos. This is his take on the vampire mythos. And here he introduces a mechanical scarab that has the ability to grant the welder eternal life. And this is a device that's created by an alchemist in way back in sort of 1536 and through the years it sort of like stumbles into the hands of the, an antique dealer called uh, Jesus Grius who finds it inside a statue um, of course not knowing what it is he manages to trigger the device and suddenly finds himself gaining a more youthful appearance and his youthful sort of vigor back at the same time attack um bringing to attention the a uh, dying businessman called uh, Dita de la Garda um who along with his nephew uh, Angel here played by Ron Perlman who is just fiendishly young um in this picture um has got plans of his own to uh, take the scarab um, at the same time Jesus is having to deal with the nasty side effects that the gift of eternal life comes with um, yeah I mean this is a film which I remember there been a lot of excitement about when it came out this was sort of between sort of like the film junkies and sort of horror fans and I still remember like seeing images of this on like the movie channel where they would show like clips of like uh, where Jesus is holding this scarab thing and it like clamps in his hand and I just remember thinking wow that looks really cool uh, I had no idea what the film was about but just this mechanical device um, which is ties in very nicely to uh, one of Del Toro's themes which is obviously insects and clockwork contraptions as uh, here the device combines both and as I said I remember watching this film uh, for the first time and it was only afterwards that I saw pieces together and thought, oh wow, he's like reworked the vampire mythos here. And just there's so many shots when I from this film, um, including a bathroom sequence, which we'll talk about in a bit, that still stands as one of my all time favourite moments of all time. And I mean, Kim, this is the first time watch for yourself. And what did you make of it? Because I think from our off air discussion, I think we're coming from this from different perspectives. <laughs> I wouldn't say we're coming from different perspectives. I definitely probably didn't appreciate the movie as much as you did. But I think that there's a there's a really good um, 
Like, it's a really good full first feature for Del Toro, for someone like that. Because you really get to see this person. Like, I talked about it before when we were talking about his work. And what's really great is his take on, you know, he takes what people generally view vampires as. As you know, they're scared of light, um, they have pale skin, um, the whole blood aspect, uh, that sort of thing. And he works it into his this story, and you kind of watch um, Jesus change into this person, you know, change into from a human into into a uh, into pretty much a vampire. But it's not like oh, he's not exactly a vampire until you know something happens to him, and that kind of ties in all this vampire mythos and makes it very interesting because. You know, you kind of establish how Del Toro is the director he is, and it's the vision that he has of not being, like, right in your face. Everything is shown up. You know, slowly he reveals different um, hints on what this story is about and what the, the big reveal is going to be and what this ties into. But it's never, you know, flat out said that, oh, this is what this movie is. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, we obviously get the start where the the history of the device is sort of introduced, and we find out that the alchemist who made this, he's discovered in after an earthquake, he's discovered in the ruins, and he's got like this marble white skin, and he's basically gone through this transformation that we're not at this point realized has come from this device that he's created. However, the end sort of shot of this introduction is the fact that when they go inside the apartment of the alchemist and he's got this naked body that's sort of hung up upside down and he's got these bowls of blood there so obviously the sort of vamp- hints of vampirism are there already but he's at the same time del toro is not giving anything away he's quite happy just to ease his house i mean the film itself is shot not in a traditional sort of like horror sort of sense it's not like um like horrific ho- sort of horror it's just the the idea of dealing with the cost of uh immortal life and just uh it's more really about his metamorphosis of jesus really the fact that he discovers his device and he doesn't know what it is but at the same time becomes kind of obsessed because he gets all his youth and his uh vigor sort of back i mean he's starts off this sort of wrinkly old man and he attaches his device and suddenly he's like got like um he's got like all his youth back in his vigor and he's got this renewed energy and it really brings a nice angle with his granddaughter who has got this concern right from the stop the fact that her grandfather is obviously using this device they don't fully know what it does and there's this really nice comparison i mean he says about how his own son had destroyed his cigarettes because he was afraid of um, him getting lung cancer and but yeah just seeing how he slowly sort of transforms and in particular the new year's eve sequence um Mm -hmm. where we see him go into the bathroom and there's a he's seen a guy who's got a nosebleed and he's gone into the bathroom and he's followed him in there and he sees like blood on the basin and the he's sort of going towards it he feels this sort of lust to consume blood and the way he sort of plays with it on the the base and it's almost like a someone doing it sort of like a line of cocaine the way he plays with the blood he doesn't like just go down and instantly go for it and just as he's about to do it we have 
uh, this guy come out of the store and like really I mean Del Toro if anyone else other than Del Toro would probably just show some guy coming out of the bathroom and wiping the basin but this guy's like coming down his trousers are like down and he's like justing himself as he walks over and it's this real sort of sense of like everyday life that Del Toro really manages to capture where other directors would do a more sort of clinical and sort of sterilized view of humanity and the fact that um, Giuseppe's basically resorts to no, licking this one drop of blood off the bathroom floor and I mean Del Toro when he talks about this scene he said that he wanted to shoot this sequence in like the most beautiful bathroom imaginable and that's why it's all like marble tiles and stuff mm-hmm. and this isn't like a, a bathroom this is sort of like a a toilet installation in an art gallery and it's so beautifully shot the scene of him licking the blood off the floor it's I don't don't know why it's just a scene that's always sort of stuck with me I mean was there any sort of particular moments in this film that sort of like stood out to you as a sort of like initial viewing that definitely had to uh, had to be one of them um the, the bathroom floor was really gross and it was just <laughs> it was just the way it was done right it was like he was building up this kind of atmosphere, this kind of suspense. And it was just someone licking blood off the floor. <laughs> um, but I think I think that one of my favorite uh, parts of this is the device itself and how it, you know, when he finally commits to letting it, you know, complete it instead of just like ripping it out of his hand and just. That intricacy of, you know, you're thinking about this film and it's in, you know, the early 90s. So a lot of this is just uh, like, you know, practical effects and things that are happening. And and it feels like so genuine and so incredible to see this this device just works so well as it clamps onto his hand and you see the this kind of insect-like creature and you kind of like see it, um, you know, see the kind of like a little stinger go in and it's just every single moment is filmed so well to give that, you know, give that, you know, oh, but why is this doing that? And then you realize what's going on. Um, it's, you know, obviously there's, there's kind of like a bit of a hidden... Um, lore behind it because you don't really know what what is you know what is this creature that's inside of this device as well yeah definitely and i think it's we only really sort of discovered the rules when we we're obviously introduced to the sort of evil businessman so to speak uh dieter who's he's uh suffering from various uh ailments and the fact that he lives now in this sort of clean room where if you go in there, you've got to, like, have everything's got to be sterilized around him. And the fact is, he, he's kept all the bits that have been cut out of him over the years in various jars um, that he keeps lined up in his in his room. And, again, this is another... It's an early sort of reference to a, another popular Del Toro theme of having things in jars. Because there's always something disgusting in a jar in a Del Toro movie. And here it's uh, bits of Dita that uh, he keeps in there and basically he's been obsessed about finding the scar because he believes it's going to grant him eternal life and I really love the 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 sort of contrast to the here that where his his nephew Angel um, as I said played by Ron Perlman who's doesn't understand why his uncle is so obsessed with finding this device as he puts it he's sort of like all he does is piss and shit and he wants to do that for eternal life it makes no sense and <laughs> 
I love the but fact then, that you know, but then you think about his character and all he ever wants is a new nose and figure out what nose works for him. So. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is he's constantly having his nose broken throughout the film and it's these bloody nosebleeds that he's like constantly season with a face of crimson like the whole way through the film and another thing I mean um Ron Perlman's character was supposed to speak Spanish but Del Toro felt that his Spanish wasn't good enough so the few bits of Spanish he speaks are intentionally spoken so badly because he, the idea being that he's this American who's been sort of stuck in Spain for like so long and he just absolutely hates the fact he's there on this absolute fool's errand as he sees it trying to buy all these bloody archangel statues trying to find this bloody scarab that uh. Jesus essentially stumbles across completely by accident not even knowing what it's about and while they try to build it up as like this villainous character, the fact he's always in the clean room and just vaguely muttering something threatening at uh, Jesus, he never really works as a villain. Um, I think his height of villainy is, oh, I ate these missing pages of the journal, and that's his most dastardly act. And it kind of falls down to Angel to be like the real villain here. I mean, for someone who's got no real horse in this race i mean he doesn't care about eternal life he only cares about inheriting his uncle's business yet he's so much more of a natural villain and involved in doing all the heavy lifting of the of uh of the plot um that it, it just kind of surprised me that someone who's so uninvested in the actual outcome of getting hold of this scarab uh will put so much effort into obviously trying to kill uh giuseppe and uh do all these other sort of acts really yeah you you would think that he would be like you know why would i help you do this this find this eternal life or what you what he believes is an eternal life when he really just wants him to die so that he can get the money yeah so you know i, I there you know there are things that can't get past and uh, and you know one of the things that has to do with that is i think that um I, I'm usually okay with slow pace, but I felt like this one was a little bit too slow. Mm. <laughs> it, it had its moments that felt like it was just, you know, going and focusing on the details for too long. And I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, Del Toro, when he did this first feature, it was still, you know, it is his first feature. So he's still trying to um, find that balance of, you know, uh, writing and uh, pacing his pacing his uh, his movie right. And I think probably he has he had a lot of details in his mind that he probably wanted to put in there. But when the movie comes out, it, you know, it works as, you know, um, like overall everything works. But it, it's the little details sometimes that seem to be um, a little bit too much, I guess. And some of the focus was a little bit uh, unnecessary, I guess. Oh, I totally. I can totally see where you're coming from. I mean, I've. I've seen this one several times. I mean, <laughs> in the lead up to this, I actually watched this twice in two days. I don't know why. I just perhaps it's because I hadn't seen it in a while. But it's certainly one of his films is definitely more about the visuals and about exploring a concept than having this story that's full of like exciting twists and turns and action set pieces. I mean, this film was made for two million, which at the time was the most expensive movie made in Mexican history, mm-hmm. and it's uh. It's certainly a, a really impressive debut. You wouldn't think this is a, a debut film. Um, yeah. Because it's got such sort of confidence, especially in its shots and 
the actual effects work that you see throughout it. It's so well thought out and, and developed. And certainly when we look at the other sort of debuts, unless they've come from like a visual background before. So we, if we ignore people like Spike Jones and, um, and his sort of like debut and like David Fincher, who come out with these impressive sort of like uh, debuts, and we look at someone like you know Tarantino or Spike Spike Lee, who have these very sort of stripped down sort of debuts, and even someone like Wes Anderson um, and his debut Bottle Rocket is the sort of very sort of stripped down, and um, they look nothing like Del Toro's one, which you could look at this and think that this is by an accomplished director who's had several films under his belt at this point, but no, he's just as I said, he's just done shorts and. Um, this is sort of his first attempt to a full, a full movie, and I mean, partway through, he did actually run out of funding for the film, and Ron Perlman took a significant cut in his payment for the film, and somehow, <laughs> they the two have remained like firm friends since, and Perlman's obviously turned up time and time again in um, Del Toro's films, much like Federico Lupi, who plays uh, Jesus, who did three films up until his death uh, from Del Toro as well, so. We're already starting to see those key players in the Del Toro family um, coming in, as well as sort of those themes. But yeah, it's um, I think yeah, I think it's certainly an interesting film, and I love what it's doing with the actual vampire concept because I I'm not a vampire fan, so to speak. I mean, I'm not certainly when it comes. I think my sort of favorite vampire movies. It's always like the ones which do those alternate takes of things, sort of like Lost Boys and Night um, and Fright Night. Uh, rather than sort of like the more traditional sort of like Dracula and the hanging around gothic castles um, style, which, uh, and uh, and that's what I like about Chronos. It it does something different with the material and it's just got so many sort of interesting shots and interactions between its characters. um, It just uh, makes for for an entertaining alternate Christmas viewing, certainly. (laughs) I noticed that too, yeah. Ultimate Christmas (laughs) viewing, yeah. And, and, you know, I think that it's, I don't know if it was deliberate also, because if you think about it, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of ironic that, I don't know if ironic, is ironic the right word, um, that his name is Jesus and he has a rebirth, um, kind of like a resurrection. Um, yeah. So I was thinking about that when I was watching her and I was like, I don't know if it was meant for that to happen or if that was just like a really normal name to have in Mexico. I mean, I'm not too familiar with Mexican films. I've only been watching more of them lately, so I don't <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesus uh, is uh, Jesus Greece, which basically translates to gray Jesus because, mm-hmm. you know, he's old and his skin yeah. does turn gray when he which I love the fact you can have a mortal life, but you're gonna essentially skit shed your skin, like a like, like an this, insect. Yeah, like an insect, and you have to basically like deal with the fact that you won't be able to deal with you won't be able to deal with sunlight and all these different things. But at the same time, you're gonna be immortal. And yeah, um, angels. Her name is Angel de la Garo, which uh, again translates as guardian angel, which he obviously is to his uncle, uh-huh. uh, even though he's pretty pretty uh i don't know what's the word nonchalant sketchy. about yeah <laughs> sketchy about doing the job um i know it's sort of interesting fact. i don't know if you picked him it um the granddaughter aurora they are played by tamara shanif she only says one word the whole film yeah uh which is uh Abreu, which is spanish or grandfather yeah 
Mm-hmm. So thank you, IMDb, for that one. Uh, abuelo, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a little Spanish background. <laughs> a little. <laughs> Very small. Um, uh, yeah, so no, I mean, but I like, I think, I think one, I, I don't really know what else to talk about uh, for Kronos, but I think that um, the last thing that I wanted to talk about was just in general how the movie starts and um like with the ticking clocks and all that stuff and i I really liked how it started and the soundtrack at the beginning with like it was like kind of tango um i don't know if that yeah it's kind of like instrumental tango music i really like that i don't know (laughs) i don't know i don't know i think that i think that there was like it's just in the details i think like how he builds up like i keep talking about it how he builds up each scene that he has and in the beginning it feels like such a it feels like they're they're such a happy family, you know. They're such a normal happy family, and you see like the grandfather and the granddaughter, and they head off to work and to the antique shop, and and then you know things just turn around really quickly. Oh yeah, it's it's so like it is so it, they introduce these characters. I mean, we're not getting like masses of dialogue here. We're just watching yeah. two two characters interact. You can see the love he has for his little granddaughter. And the fact that that she herself is sort of like gives him this sort of lust for eternal life because he is a very young spirit, and yeah. we see this in like the scenes of him playing like hopscotch with her and just the general um, interactions, like when he's doing like tea parties with her, which is oh, it's just such an adorable scene. And I've, you, it's just this. Uh, as you said, it's just all goes downhill as soon as they discover that that device, that uh, device, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, the actual Kronos devices, um, they did all go missing, unfortunately, all the original ones. So the ones that Del Toro has in his collection are all replicas. So I kind of wanted, that's kind of like a, if I had to have like one of the movie props, I think having a Kronos device would probably be up there. <laughs> I just, it's, it's such a cool little design. It's, it just, is. It's a scarab. It is. Like <laughs> I said, like one of the best features of Kronos is the design of this uh, of the chronos the device and just how it just works and how like like every single shot of it um i i mean there wasn't really that many times but that we had like a big focus on it but every time that we saw it it was just it's just you know so incredible to watch like how it just how it works like the whole how the i don't know how you say it, the, the mechanics behind it and stuff yeah no it's because, yeah, it's all clockwork again. It's that Del Toro love for, for clockwork. And and just, as you say, the fact he goes inside the device, it's not just the fact you see it on the surface yeah. and you see, like, the little legs come out and you can see, like, the little joints and how it's constructed and the fact that we go inside and we can see all the gears and the cogs. You, and... Know, you know, that that's a, that's something, you know, it's, it's Del Toro. Like I said, he's, he's such... He has so many layers to his movies and every single scene. And that's one of the, that's like a really good example of just like beginner stuff, right? But it's not beginner stuff because he doesn't only show you the exterior. You think the outside, it's like, it's like he's like saying, you think the outside looks good? Wait (laughs) until you see what's inside, you know? And, and that's really, I think, a good way to talk about Del Toro in the sense that his films have, you know, it's not just physically or visually very beautiful there is so much depth and so many layers and i think that chronos is such a is a film that really shows off like for a per for the a person's first film this is incredibly skilled and 
Um, while, you know, I don't, like, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, um, in the writing, and I think it really uh, goes down to just the writing having a bit, like, maybe a bit plot holes into, like, you know, uh, why Angel is doing this, or, um, you know, little things like the pacing. In general, this movie has a really, like, it has a, it has its creative creativity behind it, and that's, and, you know, just the Del Toro kind of style is hmm. definitely, you know, you can definitely see it here. Um, for viewing, um, is there anything that you would like to pair with this? Um, I mean, f for myself, as I said already, I mean, I've because this is obviously a take on the vampire mythos, and it's an alternative take on the vampire mythos. So, I mean, for myself, it sort of like instantly brings to mind things such as like uh, Lost Boys and Near Dark and Fright Night, just those. Those 80s uh, vampire movies that sort of made vampires and took a different sort of takes. I mean, obviously, with Lost Boys, we see them as the this uh, motorcycle gang who are basically like, oh, we've got eternal life, so we're just going to go and be like this twisted tale on Peter Pan's Lost Boys and just be like absolute hoodlums and just enjoy partying all night because we're never going to get old. We're never going to die. So life's just me a real party. And then, obviously, we look at um, Fright Night, which is sort of like, again, it's giving nods to like the classic uh, vampire mythos where we got the young guy and he's assumes that his next door neighbor is a vampire and he teams up with the late night uh, horror host here played by, by uh, Roddy McDowell to go and sort of hunt down this vampire and um, obviously when we come to like near dark it's again trim vampires but this time they're like nomads and Kathleen Bigelow's sort of like desert road movie showing them as like these traveling nomads who are going from city to city feeding on the local population and just the fact that we're putting vampires in the desert, which is probably the least <laughs> sheltered place you can put them. It's sort of like, you think of the worst places to be if you're a vampire, and I'm sure, like, a desert is going to be one of them. So, um, that would be my sort of unholy strategy. I mean, as for something directly to it, Kronos is a very hard movie to, to sort of pair it to, because there's nothing really like Kronos. It's yeah. like, uh, much like Del Toro's visions, they're very unique to him. Many of may try and replicate him, but only... Del Toro can uh, present well the way he can, um, but I mean, was it was there anything at all that sort of leapt out you came on? Uh, leapt at me. Um, I mean, in terms of you know taking a a different twist to vampire movies, minus the clockworks and minus all that stuff. I mean, yeah. Um, I'd have to say like in. I would have to say uh, Daybreakers, probably. Oh, good choice. Yeah, because Daybreakers is, you know, it's not a great movie, I would say. But it's, um, like, I don't, I don't know. It, it's kind of forgettable in some ways. But it does take a different angle to how normal people would view a vampire movie. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed that one. Yeah, I mean, I like with Daybreakers, I mean, essentially, the vampires have won. And it's sort of like, rather than, you know, this... When we look at vampire movies, it's sort of like, oh, the vampires are going to take over. Uh, like when you look at 30 Days of Night and those sort yeah. of movies. Whereas with Daybreakers, the vampires have already won. And humans are now essentially turned into human blood banks. Yeah. And that's why I kind of... I loved about that movie is the fact that... Yeah. Um, that is, is coming at a completely different angle. We're sort of like... 
coming at it from like what happens if the heroes hadn't won and I think that's always an interesting take to see and um, it's kind of a shame that it introduced the idea and wrapped it up all in one movie rather than trying to expand it which it potentially could have but it, w- it would have been a really solid TV series I think it would have worked mm. um, yeah so I mean yeah but you know think of thinking about that you know Daybreakers is set in 2019 and if you watched it next year it'd be kind of like alternate reality <laughs> that's true <laughs> so cool um, well this obviously brings us to the end of our first episode of season 2 uh, we hope you've obviously enjoyed this introduction to Del Toro and obviously us talking about Kronos um, on our next episode we will be jumping forward to 1997 to Del Toro's first dalliance with the Hollywood studio system as he directed Mimic a film which would see him clashing heads with Certain less than reputable characters in the Hollywood system who we will go into on uh, our next episode a bit more. But uh, obviously in the meantime, please do check out our blog um, on there, as I said, or you can find all our previous episodes, which is moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. You can also find us on both Spotify and iTunes and Podomatic and Anchor.fm. You know, leave us a rating, leave us some uh, comments. It uh, all helps get the profile of the show raised. And uh, if you want to interact with us uh, outside the channel, you can also hit us up on the email, which is moviesandtea at yahoo.com. And uh, we'd certainly love to uh, hear your thoughts on uh, Del Toro or anything that we've uh, sort of discussed on the show tonight. But um, thank you again for listening. And thank you, of course, to my co-host, Miss Kimlo. Thank you for and... listening and everything, you know, everything. Bringing <laughs> in this, watching this, you know, being the, you know, the person that I can talk to. Cool. And thanks to everybody listening. Um, and uh, until next time, uh, the Silver Johns uh, saying goodnight.